Well, I'm going to read, um, we're going to look at, I'm going to read verses 1 to 11 of chapter 8, but our focus this morning will be on verses 5 through 8. So Paul writes in verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, well, last time, uh, this would have been two weeks ago because last week we had the congregational meeting. So last time we looked at the first four verses of Romans 8. And we started looking at this, what I like to call the greatest of all chapters. It's, It's... I think I said it was on the Mount Rushmore of great chapters in the Bible. I'm not sure which one it would be, but it would certainly be if you said, what are your top four chapters in the Bible? Romans 8 would certainly be one of them. And in that study, we saw three things. We saw the declaration that Paul starts that chapter off with where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's the declaration, the declaration that summarizes everything he has said in Romans so far, coming up to this point, certainly summarizing what he has said in Romans 6 and 7, but also going all the way back to everything he has said from the very beginning when he introduced the gospel of Jesus Christ as the revelation of the righteousness of God. And then he says, so there's now no condemnation, this great declaration And then he also gives you the grounds for the declaration, the the things that support that declaration. And then he also gives you the purpose for which that declaration then is meant to lead to, what it's supposed to bring out of you. So again, that declaration that is for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who are united to Christ by faith, there is now no condemnation. There, you, are no long, you no longer stand condemned. The declaration serves as a summary statement for everything we've seen in Romans so far. And the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, for those who are in Christ, you stand uncondemned. You stand innocent. You stand not guilty before his bar of justice. The power of God for salvation has brought those who live by faith to the point now where there is no condemnation. 
And then we saw the two grounds that Paul gives to support this glorious declaration. First, that first ground is that we have been set free from Christ Jesus or in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So because we have been set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, there is therefore now no condemnation. And then secondly, in verse three, we see how God did for us in Christ what we could not do for ourselves in that being that he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And then we get that by faith. So what the what the law could not do in our own bodies because our flesh is is corrupt and it's weakened. The law is weakened because of our flesh. Christ is done, and then he gives that to us. So Christ was sent by God to become sin for us and then to condemn sin in the flesh. And then finally, we see the purpose for all of this so that that purpose clause in us, the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled. So by grace through faith, we not only receive the imputed righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at us, he sees us as righteous, as innocent, as holy, as perfect, positionally, but also we receive the Holy Spirit who now enables us to live righteous lives and to live lives that glorify God and that live lives that actually do perform obedience to the law. So the righteous requirements are fulfilled in us by faith through imputation and then by the Holy Spirit working in us through sanctification, we actually perform righteous requirements that are are given to us by the law. So then our practice begins to align with our position in Christ. So our position in Christ is perfect, holy, righteous, and good because of faith. And then our practice more and more starts to come into alignment with that as as we put off sin and as sin is dealt with in our bodies by the Holy Spirit. And of course, this is all a reality for those who, as Paul says here in verse 4, walk according to the Spirit not according to the flesh. So if you have a lifestyle, if you have a walk that is in line with the Spirit, that is according to the Spirit, that is uh, under the influence of the Spirit, then this reality is yours. All right, so now as we come into Romans uh, 8, verses 5 through 8, this middle section in this passage here, Paul is going to expound now upon that final thought that you saw in verse 4. That thought about walking according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. And he's going to do so by comparing and contrasting life in the spirit with life in the flesh. Now, much of what Paul says here and going on through verse 11, we've seen or it may sound similar. And we may have seen aspects of it already in Romans 6 and 7, where he has previously made contrast between living in the spirit, living in the flesh or, you know, things being under the law, being under grace. So all of these, you know, it's not like Paul is in every chapter coming up with something brand new. I mean, he's revisiting a lot of the themes that he has spoken about so far as he's going along here and reinforcing a lot of what we see. So I guess like a good preacher, he is kind of repeating some things and maybe repeating some things in a different way. So maybe we get a better understanding of it. But much of what Paul has said in those chapters in Romans 6 and 7 was from the vantage point of our union with Christ. So that was really the sort of the lens through which he was looking at when he 
wrote all those things in 6 and 7 was our union with Christ. So because of our union with Christ, we have been baptized into the death of Christ. We see that in Romans 6 uh, verse 4. Uh, because of our union with Christ, we have been united into his resurrection. That's Romans uh, chapter 6 verse 5. And because of our union with Christ, we have died to the law through the body of Christ. That's Romans 7 verse 4. But if you remember when we looked at that last half of Romans 7, verses 14 through 25, even though the power of sin has been broken in our lives, we talked about that. The power of sin has been broken. The presence of sin is still very real. And that's what you see in that, in that last half of chapter 7. Paul talks about the struggle between uh, the law of my mind and the law that's in my members and how sin attacks us in through the flesh how the flesh is weak and how, you know, I want to do what I know is right, but I don't do that. And then I often do the thing I don't want to do. That's what I end up doing. And he struggles, this battle waging in, his, in, his mem- in the members of his body. So, you know, the, the presence of sin is very real. And at the end of that chapter, he's like, what am I going to do, O wretched man that I am? Who's going to save me from this body of death? And then he finishes by saying, thanks be to God in Jesus Christ. So now we argued last time that the principle of the spirit of life is doing battle with the principle of sin and death. That's what you saw in the verse four verses of chapter eight. The age to come is here. It's breaking forth in us and it's fighting back against the present age within us. So the, that's that you know, the age to come is, is represented by the spirit, the spirit of, of life and peace and that is breaking forth now in us by, because of our union with Christ. It is now breaking forth in us and it's now doing battle with the flesh, which is part of the present age. This struggle of the already not yet in the believer is seen in those who walk according to the spirit. Now, we have, may have mentioned this before, but that verb to say the, to walk according to the spirit has the additional meaning of one's lifestyle, how one conducts one's life, how you live the habits of your life, the habits of your action. That's, that's all contained in that verb, to walk. And when he says walk according to, it means with reference to or corresponding to either the spirit or the flesh. You walk, your life is conducted according to the principles of the age to come or of this present age. And that's what is represented by flesh and spirit. These represent two diametrically opposed principles or ways of living. And as I've been saying, these correspond to the two-age teaching of Paul that you see all throughout his letters. He, he really hammers this idea of the two-age concept home in many of his letters, the age to come and the present age we're living in. And there's a, an overlap where that age to come is breaking in and is It is bursting forth with the kingdom of God coming in the person of Jesus Christ. So according to Paul, you can either walk or conduct your life corresponding to the principles of this age, which is represented by the flesh, sin and death. Or. That's probably my second favorite word. If but is my first favorite word or might be my second favorite word. You can walk or conduct your life corresponding to the principles of the age to come, which is represented by the spirit or life or peace. 
And that's what we're going to examine as we turn now to Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, where we're going to see life in the spirit here, part 2. Now, in verse 5, Paul, again, here contrasts this idea of the flesh versus the spirit, where he says in verse 5, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. So here in verse 5, Paul uses three ways of describing this flesh-spirit contrast. Now in verse 4, it is those who walk according to the flesh or according to the spirit. Here in verse 5, you see the other two. It is those who live according to the flesh or the spirit and those who set their minds on the things of the spirit or the flesh. So you've got walking, living, and setting your mind. So he... All three of these, he's, you know, he's using these to describe the contrast between the flesh and the spirit. And what it does is it goes to show the extent and the control that these two spheres exert on the individual. So to be according to the flesh is to have every aspect of your life controlled by the flesh. Your mind is set upon fleshly things, the things of this age things contrary to the Spirit of God, and you also live or you exist or you walk in this sphere of the flesh. Now I'm going to give a couple of examples here and illustrations. So I remember when I was living in Chicago. There's a part of Chicago that's on the southeast side of the city by the northwest part of Indiana. And that whole area there by, on, on the lake was like Chicago steel country. So that was where all the steel plants were. And for people who lived in that area, you know, you just kind of, that was sort of like the sphere in which you live. Now I used to have friends that lived down there and I would go visit there. I lived way up on the north side of the city and I would go visit them on the southeast side of the city. And when I went down there, you can smell in the air <laughs> the, the, the smell of the factories and the, and the, the output from the, the factories there. And it was just, this awful smell. And I would say to somebody, he's like, what's that smell in the air? And they're like, what smell? They lived their entire lives in that sphere that to them, it didn't, it didn't make any notice. They didn't notice the fact that, that the air quality <laughs> was really bad. And in fact, uh, I remember a good friend of mine moved out of that area up to close to where I lived. And then we would go back down and visit family. And, and, and they would turn to me and say, Oh, yeah, I smell that smell now. It's like because they were taken out of that for a period of time. They were able to breathe the fresh air of the north side of the city. And when they went back to the southeast side, they were back. It's like they can smell the smell. And I would imagine you probably get the same thing here if you live on a farm and you smell the, the smell of manure or the smell of animals. And it's just, you know, after a while, you live in that for a long enough period of time. You don't notice it. But someone who's got a very sensitive city slicker, city slicker nose like I do comes in and I, I, you know, it's sort of like, you know, I, I feel it when I walk in, I smell the, you know, the animals or the manure. It's like, you know, you're like, well, I've, I've been kind of working with this my entire life. I don't notice it that much. All that to say, that's kind of the idea of living in the flesh. It's living in the sphere of, it's being under the influence of, it is, it is having every aspect of your life controlled by the flesh. So then what does it mean then to live according to the flesh? That word live, it's an interesting word because the word in the Greek is, it's, it's a form of the verb to be. So it's, it speaks of existence. 
Okay? It's more than just thinking or walking. It's more than just what you're, the habits of your mind and your actions. It is, it is to, your very being, in a sense, is defined and permeated by the flesh. As we said earlier, it is to be under the influence of this current age. Now, Paul in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 8 tells us that the one who sows to his flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. So this idea of living according to the flesh is a life in which one is continually sowing and reaping fleshly things. In other words, it's a life in which one plants the seeds of the flesh and reaps fleshly consequences. Now, the flesh doesn't only mean just sinful things, okay? It primarily means sinful things, but it doesn't only or exclusively mean sinful things. Fleshly things can also just mean living, walking, thinking, existing in such a way that is solely focused on worldly affairs, solely focused on the things of this world, worldly achievements, worldly accolades, It is a mind that is not focused on the things of the spirit or focused on things of heaven. So it can mean sinful things and it primarily means sinful things, but it also just means things of this age, things of this world. In fact, think of all the ways that Paul describes living according to the flesh in his other letters. I'm going to give you four examples. The first is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. You don't need to turn there. You can note these references down if you want. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, But the the natural man, the fleshly man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. So to live according to the flesh means that you do not even recognize, you do not even accept the things of God because they are not, you cannot discern them, you cannot appraise them by the flesh. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3, where he talks about the factions that are in the church there, he says, For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, you are, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? So the idea of fleshly living is one in which you are jockeying for position, one in which you are, uh, you know, in in these battles of of factions or cliques in the church where you're trying to get prominence in the world. We've looked at this passage a few times already, and we're going to look at it again. Galatians chapter 5, and in verses 19 through 21, he talks about the deeds of the flesh, which are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's living according to the flesh. And then finally, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where Paul says, a famous passage here, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our own flesh, 
indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So that is living according to the flesh. That is existing in the sphere of the flesh. You do not understand the things of God. You live in a fleshly way. You have fleshly desires, and you search out and, and, and you seek out the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and you are by nature a child of wrath. That is living according to the flesh. So then Paul goes on in verse 5 then, uh, the one who lives according to the flesh, the one who has this mindset, then sets their minds on the things of the flesh. Now we already looked at this word briefly, but it means to have the have something to be the habit of your thoughts. So when you set your mind on something, the habits of your thoughts then sort of focus around those things. So if you have a mindset on the flesh, then your thinking, the habits of your thinking are just fleshly. You seek out fleshly desires. You seek out fleshly things. You act according to the flesh. So just as walk describes the one's habits of action, Setting your mind describes one's habits of thought. So what are your thoughts fixed upon? That's the question. Paul uses the same word here, the set your mind, phroneo. That's kind of what the word is in Greek. When he writes to the Colossian church, in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, uh, Paul writes, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. There's that that word, set your mind, phroneo. Set Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed in him with glory. So the contrast then from setting your mind on things, uh, on fleshly things, is that those who live according to the Spirit then set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's the contrast. And it all goes back to what sphere are you in? What principle rules your thoughts and your actions and guides your life? Are you under the control and dominion of the flesh? Or, second favorite word, or are you under the control and dominion of the Spirit? Do you have your mind set on heavenly things or second favorite word? Do you have your mind set on earthly things? So then if your life is governed by the spirit, it must necessarily follow that your thoughts are also governed by the spirit. Now I want to caution, add a caution here to what I just said. Because just as a life governed by the Spirit doesn't mean a life completely free from sin, right? So to a mind set on the Spirit doesn't mean a mind that is constantly thinking spiritual thoughts, right? Our bodies and our brains are physical. As such, then, the presence of sin is still uh, and always will remain an issue, okay? I mean... Our, our mind is kind of like an ethereal concept, but you know, we kind of recognize now scientifically that thoughts, at least you can measure thought activity in the brain. Okay? It doesn't mean that the brain is, you know, is the mind. It's just that 
the physical representation of our thoughts is you see the brain activity. So just as our body and our brains are physical, they are affected by the fall. They are affected by sin. So we have to fight in that area too, just as we need to struggle with sin in our mortal bodies. We also have to struggle with sin in our thoughts. But as always, it is the direction of one's thoughts and actions. Where is, you know, where is the, traject- the trajectory going? Okay. So if you were to look on a bar graph, are you, are you starting to slowly ascend? Are your thoughts getting more and more pure? Are your actions becoming more and more holy? That's the idea. Is the direction of your life going and trending in the right way? And if you're, if you're living according to the Spirit, and the Spirit is at work in you, that will be a reality. Your life will trend in the right way. Now, you may have, maybe like the stock market, right? You may have ups. You may have, you know... Bull markets, you may have bear markets, but overall, what do, they, what do all economists say? That the stock market trends upward if you look at it over a long enough period of time, right? If you look at it a short period of time, you may be in trouble. And we actually did this. Um, it was interesting when in our ladies' Bible study, we talked about King David, I think, right? Did we, we talked about that. You know, it's, it's said that King David was a man after God's own heart. And if you look at the trajectory of his entire life, yeah, you see that. Here was a man who, who fought for God, who, um, when Saul was after him, did not take Saul's life into his own hands, but you know, left it to the Lord. And, more, you know, and, and the trajectory of his life was good. But if you were to just look at that one period of time, that one year span, from the moment he saw Bathsheba on the roof bathing to the point where Nathan confronted him with his sin— you would say, King David is not a man after God's own heart. In fact, that entire chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 11, that talks about uh, David's sin with Bathsheba, God is not mentioned at all in that chapter, I think until the very end, where it said like, something like, the th- this thing displeased God very much, or something like that. You know, in, in other words, the man after God's own heart, this, this episode in his life was one that was marked by not thinking godly things not living according to the spirit. He was living according to the flesh, which can happen to the best of us. That's why these stories are put into the Bible to show you that the saints of the Bible are not some plaster saints that you put up and admire because of their holiness, but they're put in there to show you just how weak and stupid and feeble we are. Even the people of God fall and can fall miserably, but they can be saved. They can be redeemed. Because God is a great and merciful God. So finally, Paul gives us then a list of things of the spirit upon which we are to set our minds. We see, we see this in Galatians 5, 2. That's the fruit of the spirit passage. So uh, a mind that has spiritual thoughts as his habits is a mind that thinks on things such as love and joy and peace and patience Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So now we look at verse 6, where we see here not just the contrast between the spirit and the flesh, but also now what they lead to, the results, death versus life. And again, something we've seen before in Romans. But in verse 6, Paul says, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So again, here, if your mind is if if your mind is characterized by habits of fleshly thoughts, it's going to lead to death. Just as life walking according to the flesh leads in death. 
Just as the wages of sin is death. Now again, we see Paul continues to hammer this connection home. The connection between flesh with death and spirit with life. Flesh always leads to death. Spirit always leads to life. This is something that the Apostle Paul really wants to drill into our memories. Again, Romans 8 verse 3, we saw it two weeks ago. The law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. Or back in Romans chapter 6, being slaves of sin, producing fruit, leading to death. Versus being slaves of God, producing fruit, leading to life. So there is this tension in Paul's theology between the flesh and the spirit, between death and life. And again, I keep going back to Galatians 5. I think at some point I may have to preach through Galatians, but not yet. Um, But there's so many correspondences and so many, you know, just parallels between Romans and Galatians. Where in Galatians 5, Paul says, those who do works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the the reason being is because the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And it's characterized by the Holy Spirit. And those who partake in the kingdom have eternal life. So the fruit of the Spirit leads to life in the kingdom. Now again, going back to what Paul says in verse 6, to set the mind in the flesh is death. That same word uh, for setting the mind, phronema, Uh, It's a fleshly mindset. It is a deadly mindset. And why is that? Because the fleshly mind is incapable. It is incapable, is unable of discerning spiritual truth. In other places, when I was going through my notes here, I I realized how many other (laughs) biblical references I had in here. So I'm going all over the place. But Paul describes the fleshly mind again here in Ephesians 4 as a mind that is darkened. And Paul talked about it earlier in Romans 2, the darkened mind. But in Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about where he says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They have become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Again, Paul is... You know, I mean, he's being consistent in all of his letters and he's saying the same thing in different ways wherever he goes. But this fleshly mindset, the mindset on the flesh is a darkened one. But the flip side of that is a mind that is set on the spirit. Or maybe more literally, if you were to translate the Greek very woodenly, it's literally the way of think. The way of thinking of the spirit is life and peace. The way of thinking of the Spirit is life and peace. And that word life, we've seen it before. Anybody know a, a girl, any girls named Zoe? Any Zoes? <laughs> that, that's the Greek word for life. So if you, if you, yeah, that's a great name for a girl, by the way. So if you, you know, if you, you know, have a baby girl, if you have people who are about to know somebody who's have a baby girl and they want to, they're agonizing over a name, say Zoe is a great name because it means life. It means life. And it's a word that is generally used to talk about eternal life, the quality of our life, not the quantity of our life, not like eternal, like everlasting life of this kind. But it's a qualitative 
kind of life. It is a life that is far superior than the life that we're living. It is a life that John talks about in his gospel all the time, that this is eternal life. This is life everlasting. So as opposed to the fleshly mind, the spiritual mind is life and peace. This is, of course, the regenerated mind, the mind of the new creation, the new creation that is worked in us by the Spirit of God through Christ. It is a mind and a way of thinking that is focused on and in tune with the age to come. And it's not just life, but it's also peace. And this is the peace that is also characteristic of the kingdom. The peace between God and man that we have because of our justification. Paul said that in Romans 5.1. Therefore, because of your justification, we now have peace with God. The war is over. The battle is over. Our enmity with God has been declared over because of our justification by grace through faith. So this result, either death or life and peace, are not just future realities, but they have present effects too. Again, we have to remember, Paul talks about the already and the not yet. So the fleshly-minded person is already, as we saw in Ephesians 2, They are already dead in their sins and trespasses. I remember I preached that sermon. I preached a sermon on Ephesians 2 about three years ago. And and when I talked about it, I said that they are like the walking dead. So if if you're into any kind of zombie movies or anything like that, literally the people who are in the flesh are the walking dead. They are dead men walking. (laughs) Okay, I mean, they are going to die and then they are already dead in their sins and trespasses. Whereas a spiritually minded person is already alive. They're already alert. They're already sensitive to the things of God. They are already recipients of God's peace through justification. And finally, as we get to verses 7 and 8, we're going to see now the inability of the flesh. The inability of the flesh. Verse 7, because the mindset in the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And here is the crux of the issue. The hostility and the inability of the fleshly mind. So Paul first tells us that the mind of flesh is hostile to God. It is hostile to God. It has always been interesting uh, to me to see how atheists think. Okay? I mean, Paul says that the fleshly mind is hostile to God. So when you tell that to an atheist, they kind of laugh sometimes. And they'll say, I don't hate God. I'm not hostile to God. They'll tell you that atheism is simply just the belief that God doesn't exist. Or a lack of belief in the existence of God. Yet... If you look at some of the most prominent atheists in the last 20 years, uh, most of them have gotten themselves so worked up over something that they don't even believe exists. I mean, think of the writings of Christopher Hitchens. Think of the writings of Richard Dawkins. Think of the writings of Sam Harris. Think of the writings of Daniel Dennett. They wrote volumes attacking God, attacking Christianity, attacking the faith. That's a lot of effort to put into something that they don't believe exists. I mean, if I didn't believe something exists, I don't think I'd waste an ounce of energy attacking it, would you? I don't believe 
leprechauns exist. I'm not going to sit here and write five volumes attacking people who believe in leprechauns or believe in fairies or believe in crystal healing or believe in astrology. Why would I do that? Why would I waste my efforts and time? No, the fleshly mind is hostile to God. Think about it. The God of Scripture sits as judge, jury, and executioner over their lives. The lifestyle of the fleshly-minded person leads to death because those who walk according to the flesh are in active rebellion against God. And I think the Apostle James, brother of Jesus, says it very succinctly in chapter 4, verse 4 of his epistle, where he says, You adulteresses. That's not a winning way to talk to people sometimes, but you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Friendship with the world, enmity with God. So secondly, not only is the fleshly mind hostile to God, it also does not submit to God's law. So the hostility between the fleshly-minded person and God is rooted in the the fleshly-minded person's wanton disobedience to the law of God. We've said it many times, but obedience to the law of God is how we show our love to God. Right? It's not like God just gives us rules and then we have to obey them slavishly. Those laws, those rules, those commands are how you love God. If you love God, you will put no other gods before him. If you love God, you will not take his name in vain. If you love God, you will not make a graven image to him. If you love God, you will observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The summary of the law of God is to love God and to love your neighbor. On the flip side, conversely, enmity with God is demonstrated in a heart that does not submit to the law. So it's no surprise that the fleshly-minded person doesn't submit to God's law. The fleshly-minded person doesn't love God. And as we did with hostility, we need to clarify disobedience. There are are very outwardly moral people in the world, right? There are very outwardly moral unbelievers. In fact, You may even say there are some atheists that actually act more morally than Christians do at times. But, first favorite word, even the most moral atheist does not keep the spirit of the law. He does not love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is not what motivates their obedience. And their obedience or their love toward neighbor is not motivated toward a sacrificial love for their neighbor. And then finally, the real reason why the fleshly-minded person does not submit to the law is because he or she cannot. He can't, they, they, they cannot submit. They do not submit to the law because they cannot submit to the law. Again, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually apprised. The fleshly-minded person lacks the ability to do the things that please God. Now, if you recall what we said a few weeks ago when we looked at Romans 7, verse 18, a very great verse, uh, we have this desire to do the law, 
but we lack the ability. And remember what Jesus says to his disciples when they're praying on the, on the uh, Mount of Olives and they fall asleep and they, you know, Jesus says, well, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. In the fleshly minded person, they don't even have the desire the, to do the law. So that's the thing, you know, in Romans 7, again, the difference between a spiritually minded person and a fleshly minded person. The spiritually minded person has a desire to do the law. Paul says, I want to do the law, but I see within me no ability in my flesh to do the law. This, the fleshly minded person does not even have start with that first point where he says, I want to do the law. They just don't want to do the law and they know they cannot do the law. So the believer struggles between doing what they know to be uh, wrong and not doing it or uh, what they know to be right. And they despair over this disconnect because their desires and their actions do not meet. In the unbeliever, there's no such struggle. No such struggle exists between wanting to do the law and doing the law or their failure to do it. So there is no inclination and no power. The flesh is weakened and the flesh is dead. So then Paul concludes in verse 8 with a very succinct and clear statement. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Period. End of sentence. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you are in the flesh, you simply cannot please God. But as we stated earlier, it's not just that they cannot please God. They don't want to either. They don't want to and they cannot. But the good news is that Christians, believers, and we're going to take a peek down at verse 9, where he says, believers are not in the flesh, but are in the spirit. You are not of the flesh. That's what he says. But you are not of the flesh. You are of the spirit. And we're going to look at this in more detail next week, Lord willing. But I want to leave you all with this piece of good news. The Christian is no longer in the flesh. We no longer exist. We no longer live in the sphere of the flesh. To be sure, we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with the flesh. But it no longer controls us. We have a power within us. And the power of life and peace because the Spirit of God dwells in us. And that's what we're going to look at in more detail next time as we conclude uh, this look at Romans 8, 1 through 11 next week.